Fortunate Guatemala, may your altars never be profaned by cruel men. May there never be slaves who submit to their yoke or tyrants who deride you. If tomorrow your sacred soil should be threatened by foreign invasion, your fair flag, flying freely in the wind, will call to you, conquer or die. Your fair flag flying freely in the wind will call to you, conquer or die. For your people, with heart and soul, would prefer death to slavery. This week on The Anthemist, Guatemala. Welcome to The Anthemist Podcast, a slightly irreverent exploration of the stories and histories behind national anthems and the songs which define nations. I'm your host, Josh Hugel. And I'm your co-host, Robert Winship. Today... We enter the region of Central America for the first time on the Anthemist to cover the Republic of Guatemala. Now, Guatemala is currently the most populous Central American country with just over 17 million who call it home. And crucially, especially for this episode, sits just southeast of Mexico with about 541 miles of shared border between them. The relationship between Mexico and Guatemala is just one of the themes we're going to explore today as we touch on the glorious opportunities and perils of founding a post-colonial nation, how one balances the idealism of a newly freed people espoused in their anthem, and the very gritty reality of trying to run a nation in a region where conflicts were brewing with neighbors, like Mexico, as well as outside influences. Speaking of outside influences, uh, today we're also going to tackle the actions taken by the United States uh, as influenced by the conglomerate United Fruit Company, or UFCO, and the concept of a banana republic. So with that, let's jump into the history. Hot take. Colonialism is something of a stain on the world's history. So Let's backtrack to the days when civilizations were legendary and relatively local. Relatively. As with countries like Brazil, the human history of Guatemala goes way back, as early as 6500 BC. So, of course, we ask, where do we begin? Now, we can't cover the full history of the Mayan civilization, so we're actually going to start with just a brief summary of that. Guatemala was one of the epicenters of the Mayan civilization, which spanned from modern-day southern Mexico through Guatemala, Honduras, Belize, El Salvador, for almost four millennia from about 2000 B.C. until the last city fell in 1697. If you're even the least bit interested in learning more about Guatemala and the rest of Central America prior to Spanish rule, go watch John Leguizamo's Latin History for Morons on Netflix. I had the opportunity to see him live when he came to D.C., and I got to say, it is fantastic. Uh, it gives a really good perspective for this period in history and does a much better job of diving into the complexities of the story than we ever could in this format. As part of the great Spanish land grab, Pedro de Alvarado, who was Hernán Cortés's second-in-command, was sent to the Guatemala highlands with a few hundred soldiers, horsemen, and auxiliaries in 1524. Spanish colonizers gradually incorporated the territory that became the modern country of Guatemala into the colonial viceroy of New Spain. 
In keeping with Guatemala's relationship with Spain, let's fast forward about 300 years to the high drama of 1821 and the independence from Spain. And hey, whoa, it's 1821. And we're in Spain where King Fernando VII is in power. However, French invasions and the king's ouster by the liberal triennium, which you can hear all about on episode two of the Anthemist podcast, leaves this nation state a bit weak. Across the Atlantic, Mexico is in the late stages of their own campaign for independence from Spain. But we'll put the details of that on hold for the future Mexico episode of The Anthemist. It's a doozy. For the story of Guatemala, we'll just say that Mexico's revolution emboldened the rest of Central America to step forward to claim their own independence. A Congress of Central American Criollos in Guatemala City composed the Act of Independence of Central America to declare the region's independence from Spain effective September 15, 1821. Surprisingly, this process was relatively bloodless, with no real resistance from Spanish authorities. After this bold step, however, there was a lot of disagreement and regional fighting as to what should come next. After an extended period of conflict, they settled on joining the newly formed Mexican Empire, and so they were annexed in 1822. To summarize, modern-day Guatemala has moved from 4,000 years as a Mayan epicenter to 300 years as a Spanish colony to union, or annexation, under the new Mexican Empire. And this annexation was controversial. First, the good. The new Mexican constitution abolished slavery and established free trade. And rightly, Guatemalans saw this as a step in the right direction. However, Central American liberals in San Salvador refused to accept Mexico's authority, and as a result, the Mexican army was ordered in to quell dissent. To make a long history digestible, trouble in the new empire forced the newly minted emperor Itrubide to abdicate less than a year later in March of 1823. So now Mexico reorganizes as a republic and offers those previously annexed Central American provinces the right to determine their own destiny. On July 1, 1823, the Congress of Central America declared absolute independence from Spain, Mexico, and any other foreign nation, thank you very much, and established a republican system of government. From the Mayan civilization to Spain, from Spain to Mexico, and from Mexico, Guatemala is now part of a collection of provinces in the Republic of Central America. And of course, there would be peace and prosperity for a thousand years, right? Uh, well, Tell me I'm right. This uh, is great. Sorry. Oh. The Federation of Central America. The liberal-dominated assembly elected Manuel José Arce as president. Unfortunately, he soon turned against his own faction, dissolved the assembly, and tried to establish a unitarian system for the region, switching it from the liberal to conservative party in the process, and needless to say, this did not go over well. Hmm. This lands him as the lead nominee of the Come On Man Award given out at the end of this podcast. Thus, the Central American Civil War began in 1826, led by San Salvador yet again, and followed very shortly by Honduras and Nicaragua. During the conflict, 
Arce appointed Mariano Aichenea y Piñol, leader of the Aichenea family, and the conservative power in Guatemalan government as governor of Guatemala in 1827. The Aichenea regime was, for all intents and purposes, a dictatorship. Along with this dictator bingo card list of accomplishments such as censoring free speech, banning liberal ideologies, actually burning books, and establishing martial law, he also, most importantly, reinstated mandatory tithing for the secular clergy of the Catholic Church. This is a big deal because it essentially laid the foundation for the oligarchical system that eventually led to the Catholic Church becoming one of, if not the, greatest owners of arable land in all of Guatemala. More on this to come. Ultimately, Arce was deposed in 1829. So from this conflict emerges Honduran general Francisco Morazan, the dominant figure of opposition forces. He was proclaimed president of the federation in 1830. Now, to appease liberal supporters, the capital was relocated from Guatemala City to San Salvador, or modern-day El Salvador, in 1831. But Morazan's power was fading, and the opposition seized control in the provinces. What follows now is a dance for power between the Honduran general Morazan and a Guatemalan freedom fighter named Rafael Carrera. Their struggle lasts for nine years. Morazan starts off by executing Carrera's father-in-law, Pascual Alvarez, putting his head on a spike and parading it through Guatemala City as a warning to any would-be Guatemalan separatists. Now we got us a good old-fashioned blood feud, and for this act, Carrera swore undying vengeance and committed to fight for a free Guatemala. And by God, spite, and bloodshed, Carrera did it. He was appointed president of Guatemala in 1844 and declared it an independent republic in 1847. Carrera then essentially yo-yoed in and out of power until being appointed president for life in 1854, which he retained until his death in 1865. Before he died, Carrera nominated his friend and loyal soldier, Army Marshal Vicente Cherna y Cherna, as his successor. His government was described thusly by several liberal scholars, including Alfonso Enrique Barrientos, a conservative and archaic government, badly organized and with worse intentions, was in charge of the country, centralizing all powers in Vicente Cherna. The marshal called himself president of the republic, but in reality he was the foreman of an oppressed and savaged people, cowardly enough that they had not dared to call the dictator to leave, threatening him with a revolution. It is a really unfortunate fact that we tend to romanticize revolutionaries and all of narrative structure leads us to believe that the man at the head of a revolution and more importantly, the fact that someone was appointed to the position of something like president for life Mm -hmm. would be a fair and just ruler or uh, for lack of a better term, thinking narratively again, the protagonist, hero, good guy, whatever you want to call it. But the more we do this and the more we study history, the unfortunate fact is maybe he was just the guy with the most guns, or at least the most like ambitious and doggedly driven to be that guy than anybody else. That's why we, in the 
early 2000s took a turn for the Christopher Nolan version of our hero, Bruce Wayne, a la Batman, <laughs> the richest and most capable and most driven, uh, and thus someone with uh, a few dark sides, if yeah, you will. absolutely. Narratively. Uh, it has also been an eye-opening experience, at least for me, where we realize how often we, as we have been conditioned by media, tend to have rather unnuanced perspectives when we hear history like at least like extremely paraphrased histories we're like well this guy like yo-yo didn't have power and like get kicked out by folks but clearly like he was the the again the hero of this of his own story and right. thus like he got his happy ending he got to be president until he you know peacefully shuffled off this mortal coil and to better understand history narratively we need that simple binary of Here's the good guy or the guy we align ourselves with, yeah. our ideas and ideals with, unquestioned. And here is the bad guy or yeah. bad guys and the people with whom we do not associate and therefore take wholesale that everything that they did was was wrong. It's yeah. convenient and it helps you remember dates and data, but it's it's well, it's inaccurate. Yeah. I mean it's it's we we tend to weave these incredibly unnuanced perspectives into these black and white, you know, sort of things like you say, but in the reality, a lot of history, in fact, usually ends up being these kind of weird tapestries that are just a lot of different shades of gray. <laughs> they're like, they're so, like, it's easy to use, like, infinitum ad Hitlerum. That's, like, why that con concept exists. And we'll get to Hitler later on in this podcast. Ex explain that real quick for the so, listener. Infinitive so ad Hitlerum. In infinitum ad Hitlerum is is a, a debate tactic where, like, you always go to Hitler mm -hmm. or... I don't know Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or some or Joseph no one ever Stalin. goes to Pol Pot. Yeah, <laughs> except somebody probably from Cambodia. Yeah, maybe. Like uh, where it's so easy to be like, well, they're better than this guy, therefore they can't be all bad. Mm. Uh, but even that is like you're literally saying it's something that's like eighty-eight out of a hundred black saturation here, mm -hmm. as opposed to the one hundred out of a hundred. Like mm -hmm. that's still it's still awful. Again, like it's just a weird symptom of the way that we tend to think about people in history. It's like, well, if they're not as bad as X, then they can't be terrible. When really, like, truth is a is not necessarily isn't a relative thing, but what someone does to one group of people, and in this case, basically create a system in which peasant farmers have so little land to work with that they can't even make enough food to subsist, let alone be able to even maintain the land that they live on mm -hmm. is the main unfortunate narrative thrust of the thing that we're going to continue to kind of explore today. Anyway, we're like way off topic, so we're going to kind of get back to it now. But remember, history comes in shades of gray. So as much as it's easy to remember <laughs> the heroes and villains of history. It's just one big charcoal <laughs> drawing. Yeah. <laughs> Guatemala's liberal revolution came in 1871 under the leadership of Justo Rufino Barrios, who worked to modernize the country, improve trade, and introduce manufacturing and new crops like coffee beans. Definitely a big plus. Barrios wanted to get the old band back together and reunite all of Central America. He wanted this so much so that he took the country to war to achieve it. Unfortunately for Barrios, his life was claimed on the battlefield in 1885 against forces in El Salvador. Enter his successor, Manuel Barrias. A little pause for Barrias. 
This man is unique among Guatemalan presidents and really leaders in the fact that he handed over power to his successor rather peacefully. And he sponsored an open competition for a national anthem in 1887. Sweet Jesus, we made it. We made it. (laughs) (laughs) To the national anthem of Guatemala. The winning entry was not actually proclaimed until 1896, and the first performance of the anthem took place during the Central American Exposition in 1897. The composer of the music, Rafael Alvarez Ovalle, became a national hero and was decorated with a gold medal and honor diploma. Good for you. We give that stuff out to Will Ferrell. (laughs) (laughs) The lyrics were submitted anonymously, and their author remained a mystery until 1911, when, on his deathbed, the Cuban poet José Joaquín Palma admitted that he had written the lyrics. And for this, we understand that he was widely praised upon and after his death. Actual singing in the streets outside of the house where he was dying. A fine way to die after near obscurity. Indeed. Well, I guess not near obscurity. He was already a Cuban poet well known. Those original lyrics were modified slightly in 1934 by Spanish grammar scholar Jose Maria Bonilla Ruano. Some verses were softened in their bloody context, while others were embellished slightly with poetic license. The anthem has four verses and four separate choruses at the end of each verse. Unlike many other nations with multiverse anthems, all four verses are official and sung in Guatemala. The anthem is sometimes erroneously called Guatemala Feliz, which is Guatemala be praised or celebrate, depending upon the translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but officially, there is no real title and is simply referred to inside the country as Hino Nacional. So, here for your listening pleasure is Hino Nacional, the national anthem of Guatemala. i 
That was Himno Nacional, the national anthem of Guatemala. As Josh said, usually only the first four verses, along with accompanying choruses, are sung. I think what what is actually happening here is it's confusing because each, each chorus is unique. There's no yeah. repeating chorus. And and beyond that, like I think every verse is two stanzas. So I mean, like this song is is a journey. Mm-hmm. I mean, it tells. A pretty incredible story. Uh, there, there's like nice kind of little things in here that are that are interesting references to their own history. Like in the fourth stanza, so second stanza, second verse, uh, our fathers fought one day, lit up in patriotic burning, and they managed without bloody clash to place you on a throne of love. So that thing might actually speak to the the bloodless revolution by which they freed themselves from Spanish yoke. Like initially, uh, there's there's there is a ton of stuff in here that is like uh, references to flag and how much they love it. Uh, like great pride in your brave and zealous sons who adore peace as a great treasure and will never avoid the rough battle to defend their land and their home. So it's, it's a whole bunch of like, we have never been one to shy away as a nation from armed conflict, whether mm-hmm. with our neighbors or against enemies within, and we will continue to do that. And never shall we like the the very first stanza is, uh, "May your altar never be trampled by the tormentor, nor may slaves lick the yoke, nor may tyrants spit upon your face." Like the core key value of all of this is that we remain a free people untroubled by foreign influence because God knows we have dealt with centuries of that up until this point. So let's read just a few more of those stanzas. Now, we started this episode a little bit differently than we've started past episodes by reading a selection from the National Anthem. That way you get National Anthem all throughout the Anthemist podcast. So let's start again. Uh, We'll alternate stanzas. Sure. uh, Starting with the first Joyous Guatemala, may your altar never be trampled by the tormentor, nor may slaves lick the yoke, nor may tyrants spit upon your face. If tomorrow your sacred soil by foreign invasion is threatened, free into the wind your beautiful flag to victory or death it shall call. Free into the wind your beautiful flag to victory or death it shall call. Your people will, with fiery soul, die 
before being enslaved. From your old and hard chains, you forged with an ire-driven hand the plow that fertilizes the soil and the honor-saving sword. Our fathers fought one day, lit up in patriotic burning, and they managed, without bloody clash, to place you on a throne of love. And they managed, without bloody clash, to place you on a throne of love, and our nation, in energetic ascent, gave life to the redeeming ideal. And that's the end of what is usually sung for the national anthem. Uh, And as Josh said, I will reiterate, much of this is focused on literally throwing off the yoke of the oppressor, of of coming free of those chains and forging a new identity as a free Guatemala. Uh, It's a strong song. And I will also mention that we've actually read two different translations of this. I am not a, a native Spanish speaker. Um, I made it poorly uh, through some Spanish classes in high school. Uh, I did all right. <laughs> your pronunciation shows. Gracias. Uh, certainly more than mine. But you'll notice some slight differences in the translation we read at the very top of the show and this version. The song itself, I, I was remarking to Josh as we were talking, sort of sounds like it's being sung at Oktoberfest. Yeah, there's, there's there's a lot of like very. I mean, there's like the the bass and what you're hearing is tuba in the arrangement mm-hmm. as well. Uh, it's like a very kind of plodding sort of quarter note pattern. So it's that sort of umpa sound that is typical mm-hmm. in like German uh, festival arrangements and stuff like that. So I mean, it's 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 really there. I don't necessarily think I could polka to this. No, I can't polka to anything. I don't know shit about polka, but were I capable, like I don't think I would necessarily be able to do it. But it's it's an interesting kind of little thing like that's a part of the arrangement for sure. And I would say lyrically, I think this shines much stronger than musically. Uh, the music is sort of uh, fairly repetitive and they just kind of plow through it. No yeah. big orchestral swells. Now, again, many of the anthems we're playing recordings that are fairly old. We will maybe take an, a Patreon episode and talk about how uh, poorly we have accounted for the national anthems of countries <laughs> as again they mostly exist on old lps but there are arrangements that maybe take more advantage of or build on uh the initial music uh rarely the lyrics yeah. so again like uh the the spain episode of the anthemist podcast is a, a perfect example of that sort of thing where the arrangement itself is so critical in you, the listener's experience of that song, because mm-hmm. like this could be a fairly flat, straightforward plotting thing where we're just getting through the lyrics and like telling the story, <laughs> or like yeah. something we heard in the second arrangement of Spain, in Brazil, in Iceland, like there, just just the simple use of like a change in the use of dynamics and maybe in a good director. Yes, uh, of the band itself can actually help make this experience even more evocative. But I, I will agree that there's something about the musical arrangement with this one that we heard that unfortunately falls a little bit flat, especially just with like how I don't want to say aggressive because that's not the right word, but mm-hmm. like this song does not mess around. It is direct and it establishes its intention from the first stanza and off we go. We, we had a really good example uh, in Japan where the two versions are basically the same song with two very different, one a Western and then oh, an yeah. Eastern arrangement, uh, the Kimigaya. 
yeah. uh, is the name of the song, where to talk about it, we had to address these two stylistic differences. But in trying to come up with good versions of these songs for you, the listener, to hear, uh, try to get something, or we try to get something that includes uh, a vocal arrangement as well as the background music, so you can capture what it's like and still be able to hear it more clearly than you might say uh, a version sung at the World Cup where there's a lot of ambient noise. But this is something we'll dig into um, and maybe have some separate episodes as, as time goes on. But again, very strong lyrics that are very deeply tied to Indeed. the history of Guatemala's independence yeah. with music that, at least in this arrangement, is a little repetitive. It does the job, uh, yeah. but I wouldn't say is tremendous from my own perspective. Let's jump back into the history. Barrios was unfortunately assassinated February 8th, 1898. So unfortunately, the the gracious father that helped bring about the process of, of creating this national anthem was uh, abruptly taken from this world. Mm-hmm. And the turn of the century was ushered in by the dictatorship of Manuel Estrada Cabrera. His dubious list of accomplishments, uh, again, dictator bingo, includes extreme brutality, voter suppression, rigged elections, disillusion of free media, and targeted assassinations of his political enemies, including an unsuccessful attempt to poison the American ambassador, which is to say the ambassador was awoken in the embassy with a phone call in the middle of the night saying there was going to be an attempt in his life, and he fled the country that night. Arguably, Cabrera's longest-lasting and most unfortunate legacy was allowing the entry of the United Fruit Company, or UFCO, into the Guatemalan economic and political arena. Now you're thinking to yourself, gee, after all of that voter suppression, beatings, the United Fruit Company is the worst? Murdering his political opponents? Yeah. Allow us to elaborate. For several years, Cabrera had been attempting to complete a railroad through the country, but ran out of funding about 60 miles short of completion. So he decided, without consulting the legislature or judiciary, that striking a deal with the United Fruit Company was the only way to finish the railway. Naturally. He signed a contract with the UFCO's minor Cooper Keith in 1904 that gave the company tax exemptions, land grants, and control of all railroads on the Atlantic side of the country. What could go wrong? And thus, Cabrera becomes our leading candidate for our Come On Man award given out at the end of the podcast. So we're going to get into this eventually, and we've we've already kind of alluded to it already, but and we're going to explain it in detail, but basically this is the poster child of corporate lobbying run amok and influencing our government, including four presidents, Truman, Eisenhower, Carter, and Reagan, to support or direct paramilitary action against a sovereign government to promote American-owned business interests. We are announcing here on the Anthemist podcast that bananas are officially canceled. Not really. But we can take this point to stress the importance of making sure the things that you buy are ethically sourced. Which is why I live on a a steady diet of banana-flavored runts, which remain fully (laughs) endorsed by the Anthemist podcast and Uh, me personally. Banana runts, the least desirable of all of the runt family. Certainly, yeah, the most divisive. 
No joke. I love banana runs. Really? Yeah. You can have, I will save an entire bag of banana runs for you, <laughs> which you then have to sanitize because COVID, but whatever. Anyway. Bananas are still canceled. While the United States threatened intervention if he was removed through revolution, a bipartisan coalition came together to remove him from the presidency. So again, like the United States saying, look, this is our dude, and if you just throw him out, we're coming in. And they just figured a clever end around uh, having the, instead of having the filthy commie pinkos knock over the government, they instead just had him ruled mentally incompetent, at which point he was removed from power peacefully. In 1929, the Great Depression hits the country, and afraid of a popular revolt, the landed elite, read white male landowners and probably the UFCO, lent their support to Jorge Ubico, who had become well-known for, quote, efficiency and cruelty as a provincial governor and on numerous occasions actually drew comparisons between himself and one Adolf Hitler. This guy's a winner. And he wrote one hell of a cover letter uh, in his job applications. (laughs) He earns the nickname of, quote, Little Napoleon of the Tropics, and he rules in an authoritarian dictatorship from 1931 until 1945, which is not a great time uh, in terms of authoritarian dictatorships around the world. In the meantime, he gives giant concessions and huge tracts of public land to the United Fruit Company, continuing to further their reach within the country of Guatemala. In 1944, Ubico was forced to resign from the presidency in response to a wave of protests and a general strike inspired by brutal labor conditions among plantation workers at the UFCO. What we've seen at this point is yet again like another round of a sovereign leader essentially acting as nothing more than a foreman for cheap labor, which is just, that's not something you ever want to hear about a country ever. That the success of the country was based on its ability to export this product, and so the the relationship between the leader of that country uh, and its people is, yeah, is directly, not adversarial, but in a sense becomes adversarial as he's just trying to extract, like you said, as much cheap labor out of them to rise the economic status of this country. Yeah, because it's all about that GDP. In, yeah, in relation to its neighbors in the U.S. Or, or wherever. Just so that their food can sit in arrangements on American dining tables, I guess? I don't know. Uh, elaborate Carmen Miranda headdresses. <laughs> <laughs> you knew it was coming. I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say Bananas have to ripen in a certain way And when they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you You can put them in a salad No, not yet, my dear That greenish way you're looking means that you are ripe for cooking How about me? No, no, when you are fully ripe, my dear Those little flecks of brown appear Me? You're most digestible, my friend. Delicious, too, from end to end. A military junta attempted to organize Guatemala's first free election, which the liberal capitalist writer Juan José Arevalo won with a majority of 86%. 
Arevalo built new health centers, increased funding for education, and drafted a more liberal labor law. Although Arevalo was popular among nationalists, he certainly had enemies in both the church and the military and faced at least 25 coup attempts during his presidency. This guy must have had like five black belts. (laughs) Uh, A a really tight squad. (laughs) (laughs) Arevalo's successor, Jacobo Arbenz, uh, continued his moderate capitalist approach. His most important policy was Decree 900, a sweeping agrarian reform bill passed in 1952. Decree 900 transferred uncultivated land, some of which was previously probably granted to the UFCO, to landless peasants, and limited the power of corporations like the UFCO to influence things within their borders. Despite their popularity within the country, the reforms of the Guatemalan Revolution were not popular with the United States government, which was, shall we say, predisposed by the Cold War to see any labor revolution as communist. And the United Fruit Company, whose hugely profitable business had been affected by their labor reforms, began a campaign in Washington for intervention. It is worth noting for like historical context that the Red Scare is run amok in American society. Uh, McCarthyism is at an all-time high. And, you know, everybody's preparing for the bomb. You know, they're doing duck and cover, all of that kind of stuff. There's a wonderful episode of uh, Quantum Leap about that. okay. Uh, And it's just having this, like, incredible... Like, it is insinuated into, like, every fiber of the American psyche right now to look for communists and socialism, this big capital S, which is a four-letter word, uh, behind every corner because they're just doing everything they can to crowbar into our society and strip the corner, the American cornerstone of freedom and liberty for everybody from its foundation. Uh, yeah, America was the hammer that sees every <laughs> communist as a nail, or rather <laughs> yeah. every issue as Indeed. communism to be rooted out. U.S. President Harry Truman authorized Operation PB Fortune to topple our bends in 1952. With the support of a Nicaraguan dictator that they also helped install in power. But the operation was aborted when too many details became public. Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected U.S. president in 1952 and promised to take a harder line against communism. Eisenhower authorized the CIA to carry out Operation PB success in 1953. And of course, much later, Operation PB, mission accomplished. We did it. We're the best. (laughs) We got him. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. The CIA armed, funded, and trained a force of 480 men who invaded Guatemala in 1954, backed by a heavy campaign of psychological warfare and bombings of Guatemala City. Arbenz resigned on June 27th of 1954. So, again, it would be completely reductive to say that today Guatemala would be a place of sunshine and rainbows and that everything would be glorious were it not for American interventionism at the hands of insanely powerful corporate lobbyists. But it is certainly disheartening to see the country ostensibly getting on the right track only to be waylaid like this. The deposition of Arbenz began the 36-year-long Guatemalan Civil War, which 
introduced a revolving door of at least 10 different presidents and dictators, most of whom were supported or aided by the U.S., continually fighting with leftist guerrilla rebels over a course of over three decades. Uh, It left more than 200,000 people dead or disappeared, half a million refugees driven from their homes, and at least 100,000 women raped. Most of the victims, unfortunately, were Maya or other members of the first settlers or indigenous population. Uh, In some areas, government forces killed 40% of the total population. The Operation Sophia campaign in particular, uh, which took place to counter alleged communist subversion, destroyed at least 626 Mayan villages. This is one of these these history lessons where we walk right into a time frame that that many of you listeners, uh, including ourselves, have been alive for. So modern history uh, is is full of not just unsavory details, but 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 horrible uh, atrocities yeah. uh, for the people of Guatemala, including and especially the indigenous Maya. There is a, a little bit of a bright spot, I guess, if you can call it that. Something we'd like to highlight in 1992, an indigenous human rights advocate named Rigoberta Minchu won the Nobel Peace Prize while in exile in Mexico for her work raising awareness about the Mayan genocide. She also founded the country's first indigenous political party called Winac and ran for presidential office in 2007 and 2011, where each time, unfortunately, she lost in the first round with roughly 3% of the vote. And finally, she was one of the founders of the Nobel Women's Initiative in 2006. The Civil War ended in 1996 with a peace accord between the guerrillas and the government negotiated by the UN. Uh, Since the peace accords, Guatemala has had both economic growth and successive democratic elections, although there have also been a long line of political scandals and corruption charges, unfortunately, to go along with them. Ultimately, however, since we're no longer talking about the uh, targeted mass killings of any particular population in the name of stamping out leftist insurgents, Mm -hmm. uh, frankly, I can call that a win. Yeah, relative to the history of the country and the recent history of the country, I would agree. Yeah. So that's Guatemala, but one national anthem which, uh, in its bloodiness, manages to capture rather fully uh, the difficult history of Guatemala from Mayan civilization to Spanish conquest to Mexican, part of the Mexican Empire, and then, uh, and later, a going concern for the U.S., unfortunately, with the United Fruit Company, and yeah. uh, up to 1996, where we leave Guatemala uh, in its most recent stage of history. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested at all in learning more about uh, the nature of banana republics, this most certainly isn't the only time that we're going to talk about it. We're certainly going to get into it when we talk about Honduras. Uh, there is another company that is... is So, USCO is now Chiquita Banana. Mm-hmm. And the other company that we're going to talk about... Wait, that's... Yeah, that's the uh, that's... M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end of this. They, 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 they now go by the yeah, name... Yeah, by the way, this is a real thing. This is why bananas Chiquita are banana. canceling, bro. Uh, additionally, there, there there will be another company that we cover uh, when talking about uh, Asian Pacific Islanders, mm-hmm. in particular, that is now Dole, mm-hmm. uh, particularly 
If we ever cover Hawaii, which I imagine we probably will, just because it's a fascinating and incredibly unfortunate story, how it became our 50th state, uh, the company that is now Dole had a large hand in, in pushing us to capture that. Not only that, but you know, also because we needed a strategic military position in the middle of the Pacific to combat the Japanese empirical threat. Uh, yeah. In an age, all where, of these are real feel-good stories. Unfortunately, in an age where we look to the true boogeymen of financial institutions causing uh, economic collapse, we forget that uh, fruit companies also f- people over for centuries. <laughs> <laughs> Just not as sexy as a Bernie Madoff. <laughs> I guess not. Here's to you, Dole and Chiquita. When they're flecked with brown and have a golden hue Bananas taste the best and are the best for you That wraps up Guatemala. Of course, uh, we thank you for listening to the Anthemist podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or strongly worded emails about anything we've covered, uh, including you, Chiquita Banana Company, send them to anthemistpodcast at gmail.com. Here I might be inviting the wrong uh, interests, but we <laughs> appreciate fine. any we'll attention. No press is bad press. No press is bad press, especially uh, for the saturated market of podcasts. Yeah. Uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Feel free to look us up on Patreon. Help throw a couple of bucks so we can keep this podcast going and maybe... You know, make this a full-time gig or something. We'll send you a bundle of uh, stolen bananas. Yes. Finally, Josh, what great nation will we sing about next week? We will sing about the Republic of Singapore. Uh, A country that I know mostly for its judicial canings and its excellent grindcore bands. Yeah, no spitting in public, and uh, we're going to shred your face off next week. It's going to be great. (laughs) What a national anthem. For the Anthemist, I've been Robert Winship. And I'm Josh Hugel. We'll see you next week.